Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. We had some nice follow-up. We had some nice uh, nice reviews. Um, we sure did, yeah. Some nice emails. Thank you for, for people from around the globe. We had an iTunes uh, comment from uh, SevernSide62 in the UK who said, Very enjoyable. Love this cinema podcast. Well-informed, very witty, and I really look forward to each new episode. Keep up the good work, fellas. Oh, that's yeah. really nice. That's great. Yeah. And uh, Cliff Carson wrote, uh, thank you, Cliff, for reaching out to us, that he just discovered the show. Love listening, he loves listening to it while he's working. His request, though, he has a request. Do Carol Reed's musical Oliver, 1968 winner of six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Ron Moody, Shani Wallace, Oliver Reed, Mark Lester, and Jack Wilde. Thank you, Cliff. Cliff, that is a great suggestion, and I, I would love to do some musicals. We should do a musical series. I know you're, you probably have a thing. Like, you don't want to do documentaries. I love musicals. And what I'll say to Cliff is, this is your podcast, Cliff. Consider yourself at home. Huh? Huh? <laughs> like good. the little tie in there? Uh-huh. <laughs> part of the family. Consider yourself part of the family. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right. It's on the list. I haven't reviewed the list in a long time. Are we still, I mean, have we culled the list at all? Or are we still really scheduling out at 2025? Yeah, it's pretty far out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Maybe by the time we get to it, there will be a Hamilton musical. Maybe. Hey, there you go. I'd we could do musicals that. that are named after a person. <laughs> Oliver, Oliver Hamilton. Hamilton, Sweeney Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad we've already done that. That's true. There's it's like some, a head so many start. versions of that one. Though. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any other news? Do you see anything good? I did see Angry Birds. Oh, for crying out loud, Andy. I hey. thought we agreed to boycott that movie. You agreed to boycott we f- it. We I agreed said, not Yahoo. to see it. We firmly agreed that it was a ridiculous movie. We meaning you. Uh, what did we think of it? We meaning me? <laughs> Let me tell you, seriously, we don't care. So say whatever you want. <laughs> oh, I see how it is. Um, you know, it was it was all right. It wasn't uh it wasn't anything new or anything uh amazing but it was actually uh it surprised me that i actually enjoyed it as much as i did particularly peter peter dinklage as uh, mighty eagle i thought he was actually a really funny character and he made me laugh every time he was on screen so he was a thrill to be in the film and uh, yeah i mean you know it is what it is it's birds shooting themselves with slingshots to destroy <laughs> <laughs> to destroy the pigs' houses so that they get their eggs back. But it still was fun, and my daughter absolutely loved it. So so there you go. We are not surprised. <laughs> There's my three-star there review I got for that Three one. stars? Well, three, Jeez. you know, three. it's like the, you know, the Angry Birds star ranking. I got my three stars. <laughs> you didn't get it. You didn't get it. But it is I, three. No, I did I give it three out of five also, though, so... <laughs> The best joke, I, I can't remember who it was. It was, um, maybe it was, uh, that was one of the late night guys who said, gosh, why are those birds so angry? Because <laughs> they wish it was five years ago. 
Well, you know, what's funny is uh, as somebody asked uh, Russell Crowe, he's like, wow, boy, you guys are going to have a, you know, a tough weekend with your movie. You're going to have to go up against uh, the Angry Birds. And he uh, commented, well, you know, I don't know. I'm a crow and I'm working with a gosling. I think we're two pretty angry birds ourselves. <laughs> oh, well, well played. I wonder no, who wrote that good. for him. <laughs> they were pretty clever, whoever yeah, they were. Pretty clever. That's all we got. Uh, let's tell the people where we're from, shall we? Where are we from? This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Guten Tag. And we spoil. <laughs> Did you hear that? You almost went German. I almost went German. It's happened so fast, Andy. It happened so fast. Oh, we, and we spoiled the movies. movies. Tonight on the show is Fritz Lang's first talkie with M from 1931. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've recently uncovered the power of the voices in your head, then quick before it's too late. Head down to the basement for the next reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And with that, let's head down to the abandoned distillery where Games Master Stephen Smart is holding Kangaroo Court to see if we can break him away for a quick sec to fill us in on who won. Hey guys, this week's movie was John Ford's How Green Was My Valley from 1941, starring Walter Pigeon and Maureen O'Hara. And this week's winner was at The Other Scotty. So congratulations, you are entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday. So thanks guys, and see you later. We do have some follow-up this week from the good Ben Lott, friend of the show, with the blot spot on Spies. Ben says, I totally agreed with you both on Spies. It had a few slower parts, but the story was very good and felt ahead of its time. It ended up feeling just like a classic Bond film. And that final sequence where she was tied up, the guys were fighting over the gun, and our hero was trying to find her was extremely tense and exciting. Your rank 197, my rank 52. 52. See, that's funny, because I think we actually both agree. We we both really like the movie. How did our ranks get so far away? Because we have the O'Brother block. I don't think he... I, I wonder what his O'Brother block is. That's true. Ben, next week, what's your O'Brother block? We, we need to know. There's got to be do. something. We really need to know. Yeah. The people have a right to know. Let's do trailers. Uh, Andrew, I I really don't know what to make of your trailer. You know, I'm just tickled to talk about it. <laughs> thanks. This thanks is, for <laughs> This is the creepiest. <laughs> it's the creepiest thing I have seen. It is. Uh, it's. I don't even know. It makes me laugh so uncomfortably watching my trailer. I don't know how to talk about it. It's so strange. My trailer is for a film called Tickled that is, I guess you could say it's a documentarian who discovers this, uh, I I guess it's kind of an underground world, right? Oh, it's it's, underground. It's it's an underground world of uh, competitive endurance tickling where groups basically... Tie up one of their members, and I shouldn't say tie. It's like chain them down. Yes. <laughs> Hop on top of them and tickle them. Hop on top, and yes, no, yes, they straddle it's, them. Yes. Sometimes yeah. many people at once. On, 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 yep. And tickle, tickle, tickle. And what this documentarian learns is that this is just the surface. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a very dark underbelly 
in the world of competitive endurance tickling. Because as it turns out, maybe not so surprising, there are people who have a fetish of watching other people get tickled. And it turns into a dark investigation about, you know, trying to uncover these people who kind of were duping these uh, college kids into being these uh, competitive endurance ticklers so that they could film them doing these tickle competitions and then using these videos in ways uh, showing them to people who enjoyed it far too much. And uh, and then these people started kind of getting uh, a lot of uh, hate mail from it. And so it's it sounds like a really interesting, dark journey. And the film uh, did uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, got quite a bit of notice at Sundance. And uh, was it Sundance? I think it was Sundance. And uh, wherever it was, it got quite a bit of notice this past year. And uh, now it's that documentary that everybody's kind of talking about. And I just don't even know what to say. It makes me so uncomfortable, but I'm so fascinated by this and I really want to see it, but I'm going to have to be really, this is, this is kind of like my horror movie. Something about the whole idea of competitive endurance tickling just, (laughs) just terrifies me. (laughs) But here's the thing I don't understand. This is the thing I'm not clear on. Who is it that based on the trailer that was sending the, the messages around, you know, what do you think your boss? gonna say because i you know that that was the whole message at the end that it got really creepy and intense because you know these people who were in these competitive underground tickling associations were you know started to be threatened that they would be exposed somehow right and i almost got to think that that it was it was one of the people within the association that was going to start leaking information uh, you know, I my sense of what it was, and I watched a few other videos on YouTube. There's a few like interviews with the director and stuff like that. Man, what I would give to see your YouTube history right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's so it, it, you go down a dark hole when you start this. But it, no, it's it's like. Um, the organization. I, I think it was people who, because basically, it's like a form of pornography. And so some people felt that these people who were participating in these things were basically um, acting as as pornographers. And so that I think that some people were so offended that they were like, you know, if your boss finds out you're going to get fired sort of thing because mm. that's just disgusting. It's guy, it's all male competition. So it's like a bunch of guys and all fit college kids sitting in like tight sports clothes sitting on top of another one tickling them. And I think it was almost like some people viewed it in in ways that, uh, you know, it just it it just seemed uh, too pornographic, and they that's why I think why these guys are getting threatened. And so the documentarian goes out, tries to get in touch with this company that puts it on, and you know all these doors are shut, and he can't get through, and it, they start being followed, all sorts of creepy things. It sounds dark and weird, weird, weird. Oh yeah. No, there's it's it's really it's not good. It's one of those document documentaries. So I, I'm definitely gonna get in line for this one. Um, it looks like uh, it did open at Sundance uh, this January, and it's played a bunch of festivals. It looks like New Zealand is gonna get it May 26th, which is coming up right quick. And then in the U.S., it looks like it's gonna be playing starting June 17th. I am looking forward to that. Is it? Do you know if it's getting a direct digital release, or are they going to do? Have you seen anything on that? Um, it doesn't say. Um, let me see if I can find a website for it, and I'll let you know. All right. Well, in the meantime, I want to talk about my trailer, which is another Keegan Michael Key film. Uh, you know, I got so excited about uh, Keanu. 
Oh yeah, uh, the Key and Peele, and and uh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm which is terrible. I'm now feeling horribly guilty now that Steve's doing all these trailer rewinds, <laughs> and I feel like I need to see all of these films the second they come out, or else I'm going to continue to be shunned. Yes, you will. They're, you you're a part they, of it too. Let me just get that out. We'll talk. I don't know what you're saying. We're going to speak again. <laughs> You and I, we shall have words. Anyway, my film this week is called Don't Think Twice. I adore the trailer of this because when I started, uh, when I pushed play on the trailer, I didn't know what I was going to get. Of course, I thought this was going to be just kind of a, a fun sort of, you know, a, a, a Keegan-Michael Key thing. Uh, and it turns out it's got a little bit of heart. This is a Mike Birbiglia uh, film. tells a story of a, a group of best friends who have an improv troupe in New York City, and they have the opportunity to go uh, audition for an SNL-like entity. And it's, it's a story of what happens when these people who are practicing improv actors and aging adults have to come face to face with their, uh, you know, with what comes next. What is their next chapter? What if they don't get this job? And I, I really like these stories, and I like Mike Birbiglia. I think he's a, he's a funny guy, and, um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this film. So uh, this is written and directed by uh, Birbiglia, and uh, he is. Uh, what did I just see him on? He did something with. Uh, he, he did a uh, This American Life uh, comedy special. He also plays Danny Pearson. On Orange is the New Black, if you were watching that film, so or that show. So, uh, what'd you think? You know, I thought it looked good. I, I liked the feel of it. It had a it had a very much an indie sort of vibe, um, but I liked these characters. I liked this search for uh, you know something greater in the world of improv comedy. I thought that these they they just all had a nice feel, and I I really enjoyed this um, the sense of the trailer as it felt like kind of this character journey. As they, as things could potentially get tense, as the group has to go audition, and you know, there's already some tension in the group as you know, as we kind of glean, but it looks like it could uh, it could grow. So I I don't know. I find it I find it like an interesting sort of film. I think would be fun to watch. I don't know if I'd run out and see it in the theaters, but it does look like something that would be worth a watch. I'm I'm hoping it gets a a quick digital release because that's another one that I I would download pretty quickly if it uh, if it hits my iTunes. But again, I yeah, I'm not sure it's I'm going to run to the theater for it. Uh, rounding out the cast is uh, Tammy Sayer, um, Chris Gethard, and uh, Jillian Jacobs from Community. She's fantastic, and Kate Micucci, uh, who is also just delightful. She plays the ukulele. You know her? No. With with Ricky Lindholm, she does. Uh, uh, she has a little touring uh, thing. They, they a little musical group. She's fantastic. She has a voice you would not miss. Uh, she's she's really great. So anyhow, when does it come out? That I'm I'm so glad you asked. I should probably check for that. Uh, it comes out July twenty second, two thousand sixteen, in the U S. Uh, it already played at South by Southwest this year. So uh, just hit Tribeca Film Festival in April, uh, Boston, May 3rd, and then uh, July 26th, or July 22nd, wide release. That's it. Don't think twice. Do you find out anything more on yours? It is not opening um, digitally. It's going to be a theatrical release in June. So digital release will probably come when it uh, gets released on physical media like Blu-rays. All right. All right. Hey, Andy. Yes. That is a nice ball you have.
The original title of M was Murderer Among Us. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, it, it did get released uh, finally as just M. Fritz Lang, this is a story of a small town plagued by a serial killer of children who happens to have uh, a proclivity for whistling Pierre Gint and balloons. His activities pit the town criminal element and the police against him, and it makes just a fascinating profile of mob behavior. It, it causes you to question the balance between security and justice in the face of fear. It is, uh, I'm going to say it, Andy, we're climbing the mountain with Fritz Lang films. It is my favorite of the set so far. Is it? Which which may be uh, because I was, after two films, fatigued by silent movies. And, and that may be, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that sweet breath of fresh air. Oh, this that work. comes from sound, uh, but uh, but no, I really enjoyed this movie. How did it hit you? You had already seen it because film school, right? That's right. I enjoyed it too. I, I really do enjoy the film. It's uh, just a gorgeous print that they've uh, restored, and it's just, I mean, it really is kind of a stunning thing to look at. It's a really interesting kind of change in pace for Lang because he had so much expressionism in his previous films that we've talked about. And here, I mean, there's still some expressionism in there, but it's so much more almost like a documentary realist sort of um, look with, paired with this police procedural, if I can say it, police procedural. And I I like that he kind of made that change. I talked about that with Spies last week, how he kind of changed from what he was doing in Metropolis to Spies. And then again, there's a change here. And I, I think that Lang helms it very well. I think he shows his hand as a very assured filmmaker with the tools that he has and the way that he moves the camera, the way that he sets up the framing, the way that he has the actors um, working within the frames, and just the way that the story flows. I think it is a really interesting story. And it seems like it might be potentially boring when you get a sense that, oh, it's not really going to be about the killer of these kids, even though we know who he is from early on. It really is kind of following the police and these criminals as they work um, separately, but, uh, you know, in their own groups trying to stop this guy. And it ends up being uh, a very uh, interesting and enjoyable film to watch. 1931, the film comes, uh, it's it, the, the sort of rising um, stakes, political stakes in, in Germany. Um, it is uh, certainly, I think, telling a story about Lang's take on the rising power of the Nazi regime, don't you think? It is, although he never says that. Um, you know, people would ask him what it's about. And all he would really say was, you know, it was a, a message about, it was a message, I mean, he kind of did depict it as a message movie, but it was really a message about how uh, mothers and parents need to really keep an eye on their children. And that was kind of all he said. And so it makes me wonder if um, if it was something that that he kind of, uh, put in there a little bit, but knowing that his wife, who wrote the script, was, uh, you know, she herself became a Nazi, it makes me wonder uh, where the line was for the two of them as they kind of wrote and made this film. If he, if he really kind of guided her in that direction without her really seeing it, because I mean, Goebbels saw this film and he saw, oh, this is a film that's all about, you know, it's it's pro death penalty. And and 
totally uh, uh, ate the whole thing up that this was exactly what needed to be said by the German people and by the Nazi government. And so he was all for this film. And so it makes me wonder if he kind of had some subversive um, look at the rise of Nazism that he kind of got past his wife as she wrote it. Yeah, this is the the danger of of you know being a statement filmmaker, right? I mean, this is when you're holding up a mirror for others to see some cultural reflection. They're going to see what they want to see, and Goebbels in that case, oh Goebbels, <laughs> he uh, he saw uh, you know the rise of the of the Nazi state. He saw the rise of the power of the people of the the chosen people, uh, and uh, in taking care of these kinds of horrible problems, uh, and. I you know I feel I I feel like Lang does it a disservice by not sort of speaking more clearly about what the thing was about because it's it it seems fairly uh, like it it wears its politics fairly clearly on its sleeve and it does not paint Germany in a friendly uh, with a friendly face with a friendly brush uh, everything is dirty and gross and it takes place in the shadows and darkness. And it is, I mean, it's a film that lives not only in its narrative in the criminal element, but in its production and design as well. And that has its own sort of message uh, about, you know, what the film really is saying. Yeah, it, it, I agree. Um, but I think that there had been other filmmakers, um, not just in Germany, but around the world who had been exploring the, this documentary realism. Um, I think there, there was more of that. I want to say the Soviets had some more of that in some of their style of filmmaking. And I feel like there was more of that coming out of other areas of the world as well. The Soviets sort of had the corner on that, uh, on that particular angle of yeah. cultural realism right and so so i think that yes it, it really depicts kind of that that dirtiness of of germany and just kind of the the raw sense of how this world really looks but at the same time i think that it also um fits in the in the style and so i don't know if people would look at this film and say oh you know he's you know commenting on how berlin looks these days or well, something like yeah that. certainly and that is a um, that is a a, st- a gift of hindsight surely um lang spent time in a in a german asylum researching the film and he met uh, a couple of uh, influential folks while there peter Curtin, the vampire of dusseldorf or the dusseldorf monster who was responsible for a series of murders and sexual assaults between february and november 1929 and killed a nine-year-old girl in 1913. Uh, he, it, Lang sort of sparked a, a, an obsession with serial crime. He met uh, Friedrich Harman, the butcher of Hanover, Karl Grossmann, the murderer, who was a, a murderer and a cannibal, and apparently not cool enough for a nickname, and Karl Denke, who was not only a murderer of 42 people, but also a cannibal himself. And uh, this, I, I have to I clearly there was a, a bit of a rat hole. Uh, but the best source article on the subject that I came up with, Andy, is this one. It's from the Straits Times, which is out of the Philippines. Cannibalism. Hard act to swallow. What drives people to eat others? We examine the body of evidence. <laughs> I don't know if you looked at Peter Curtin, but it says he was considered a vampire because he drank the blood of a killed swan in December 1929, and he also made attempts to drink the blood of some of his human victims. Yeah, that, that was a that was a... a kind of recurring theme of these guys that they were they were there was this cannibal intent in in all of them and i think that is 
fascinating. We obviously never saw Peter Lorre the cannibal uh, in this film, but um, but I, I find that interesting that these are the guys that uh, Lang sort of latched onto. And he was, I should say, apparently he was uh, sketchy about who he he met and who he didn't. And this is sort of cobbled together with a series of books and interviews where he he um, pieced together who he actually used as reference material for this film. Well, and we should mention that there is an actual film coming out soon called Fritz Lang that is about this period in his life as he's doing research on uh, the or with these murderers as he's trying to kind of get the story for M put together. So um, it uh, I don't think it really has any sort of a, a release date over here yet, but it certainly sounds like an interesting film that will be worth checking out when it does finally make it over here. Uh, okay, so the script, once again, written by Lang and his wife, Thea von Harbo, you mentioned that. Um, how well do you think uh, this script does in actually capturing all this research of these horrible people? Uh, you know, I, I mean, there's not a ton. <laughs> I think, I think there's more, um, story focused on these, um, the people trying to track him down Yeah, and the killer himself. I, I kind of felt a little conflicted about it. Um, you, Early in the film, we see him writing a letter. It felt, you know, like a, a precursor to Zodiac, where he's writing a letter to the newspapers. Apparently, he had written letters in the past to the cops um, with uh, no response, and so now he's writing to the papers and kind of saying it, it's almost like, you know, you know, you, will you ever be able to figure it out, sort of thing. But it, it, I don't know. It, it it bothered me because it felt like a conflict in character of who Beckert was. Um, when you see him at the end and he's talking about this compulsion in him, um, I don't want to, but I must, that whole sort of thing. But then you see this guy writing these letters. The letters feel like they're coming from a character who's really, you know, all all good doing it and isn't necessarily um, struggling with this compulsion. And so you know, that was an element that if he pulled that from some of these murderers, maybe it's, you know, he pulled too much information and some conflicting information. He just thought all this information sounded really good. He'd throw it in here. But for me, it made the character harder to swallow. And I'm not sure we needed it. I, I agree with you that the the sort of psychosis in, you know, Laurie's character at the end of the film was not a guy who needed to showboat. Um, you know, he was a guy who was in... Uh, a, a lot of trouble in his own mind. He was not a guy that needed to be uh, necessarily, you know, touting his uh, his wares. On the other hand, uh, you know, you could call that a cry for help. I mean, you could call that him trying to get out of, you know, this horrible cycle that he was in um, by finding someone who would find him out. Uh, which which ends up being kind of how I how I wrote that that bit off. I, I agree with you. It didn't necessarily feel right, but it does. It, it could be rationalized as a cry for help. No, and I I definitely see that, and that was something that I kind of also used to kind of write it off. I just felt like if if I am writing it off, if that is the reasoning there, I felt like the content of the letter might not have quite fit exactly with with somebody who's you know trying to yeah ended up being almost more of a tease or a prod than a a cry exactly yeah Yeah, that makes sense but but you're right this much of this film is not about him and in fact laurie doesn't spend a whole lot of time on screen 
and certainly not a lot of time talking until his great big, uh, you know, monologue at the end. Um, much of this film is about setting the stage for uh, the criminal element in this town who is running into too many police because the police are all trying to find this murderer of children. And so they want to, to also find this murderer of children so that they can get back to work of being criminals. So did that make any sense at all? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And, and you know, as to your point, I think <laughs> connecting the two, the whole idea of these letters, really ends up only serving the plot because that's how the cops are able to finally get the clues they need to figure out that it's Beckert. Right, right. Uh, but but this is, as a result, this is much more of a cultural story, and it's a really interesting one, I think, the the, the game they play with us, because, you know, it, we have this sliding uh, scale of evil in this film. No one is really good, but what we have on the, the sort of good end, we have this corruption in the police, uh, and, you know, they're kind of neutral. <laughs> they represent neutral. And then it, we, we go through the darker element of these darker criminals who are also planning to do uh, evil, which is to kill this murderer of children who is sort of the most evil. But in the end, what they manage to do is pull a, a Breaking Bad, or, or at least Breaking Bad ends up pulling a, a, um, an M, which is to make us feel sympathy for our central antagonist, this murderer of children, at the hands of the mob. And I think that is the gift of this film, and I think it ends up being really exciting. Uh, by the time Laurie is thrown down into the cellar with the hundreds of criminals waiting for their, you know, for their turn in this kangaroo court, I am on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I'm not sure sympathy is the word. Um, maybe understanding um, trying to trying to get a sense of who this character is and and connect with him, and I thought that was the real strength is is really trying to understand Laurie and where he's coming from because you don't ever get that before. You know, he's such a mysterious character, and he's and he's always really creepy. The way that uh, that he's you know he um, kind of hunts throughout the film, and the way that we kind of hunt him. You know, when he's like getting his drink in the little cafe, all of that is very. Interesting. And and then you have that moment where he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's like, you know, all, like pulling his the corners of his mouth down, trying to kind of create this monster that's like they're talking about in the paper. And he's like sneering at himself in the mirror. It's really interesting um, a character study. And then you get his uh, his speech at the end. And it really it, I mean, it does help you kind of understand where he's coming from, even if it's just a horrifying place. But um, yeah, I mean, it's you are kind of there with him in that place. As he's dealing with these, uh, this kind of this kangaroo court of all these criminals who really are there to hang him, it's a it's a pretty um, uh, powerful scene, and it's uh, it's horrifying in just kind of everything that there uh, that's happening there. Well, and I I stand by the term sympathy. I think he does he does become the sympathetic character, not because we we necessarily want him to get away with it, but but because uh, there is a sense of of you know justice that. You know the, the the vileness of the kangaroo court has become so you know such an atrocity that even this guy who has done such horrible things 
needs to be handled in a right and just way. And I think maybe that's the thing that makes this film even even feel even less dated than it otherwise would, that I am able to apply my uh, contemporary sensibilities of law and justice, law and order, uh, to this guy and find sympathy in his character. Well, yeah, I, I guess there's there's something finding sympathy in his character and feeling sympathetic for him. I guess that's, you know, I... I He's I, pitiable. He is a pitiable well, character. Yes, he is. He is. I guess I just struggle with the uh, idea of, of actually feeling sympathy for him. But yeah, I guess that is an interesting element that the film does is it does kind of uh, make you question that within yourself as you as you do kind of pity this character. So it is, I guess it is interesting. I'll give you that. <laughs> We've uncovered Andy's interest. <laughs> Back to your tickle courts. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, the, the, we don't see uh, mothers all that often in the film. No, and that was something with the script that I thought was kind of interesting. It's like, you know, they set up this whole idea of how um, these mothers are um, broken because their their children are taken, and it's kind of left there. We never see the mother from the beginning, Elsie's mother. We never see her again after he takes Elsie, and Elsie disappears. She's not back again until the very end of the film. And I felt like um, it, it was an interesting way to kind of do this film, where you don't get to you don't get that sympathy from. Um, any of the characters who have suffered the loss and you don't get that fear of other mothers. I mean, you do get, um, you know, like a, a, a casual mother who meets her daughter halfway as she's walking and stuff like that, but nothing to, that to me really um, made me feel like Lang really wanted us to have kind of those sympathetic, those other sympathetic characters to connect to. Now, looking at the fact that he does, like you said, end up creating this sympathetic, more sympathetic character in 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 uh, in Peter Laurie's character, um, it's an interesting way to approach the story. I, I feel like I would have liked to see more mothers in there, I, but I, I guess I'm thinking about this as I talk. I actually find it really interesting that there weren't those characters. It was only Laurie who ended up being the character that you could kind of emotionally connect to. Well, and, and so this was the, the piece I had a, a challenge with, that the mothers we see in the beginning, uh, we see one sequence where a father is mistaken for the criminal, and it, mob mob mentality takes over. A man. We don't know if he's well, a Well, yeah, that's a good point. A, a man. Uh, but the the next time we really see the mothers of substance is, is when they are screaming as part of the court in the cellar, right, at the very end. And... You know, I had a problem with that because it puts these people who suffered the greatest loss um, in, as a more of a central role in in what is portrayed as a criminal underbelly, right? They have a they have different motivations uh, for vengeance, right? One is you know we're going to seek vengeance, which is a natural sort of human response to great loss of a child. One is we want to clear the path to get back to business as usual, but they put them physically all in the same giant group as the mob and and I found that that was not a very um, delicate uh, resolution. No, it wasn't. The, the women in the film in the kangaroo court, it just really in that whole underworld side of it, are really just. Uh, another element like the men, right? They they don't 
Um, I mean, yes, they, they talk about, oh, you, you, have you ever had a child? I mean, that sort of thing. But at the same time, I don't think that they're treated that much differently than uh, Lang treats any of the other uh, criminals. Exactly. I mean, place is important. And the place you put these characters in, in as a function of the mob, you know, that, that speaks volumes. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, um, this was Lang's very first sound film. Right. What'd you think? I think that Lang showed incredible restraint in how he used sound. Um, I, you know, I, I think that the danger of getting this new technology and, ooh, we can make people talk on screen. Um, I, it's clear from other films out there that some people got really excited about just having everybody talk. And it was just really talky, talky, talky. Um, hence the nickname, the talkies. I think that he used it in a really careful way to, um, where he sometimes had sound lead images or he had images lead sound or he had sound off screen that um, was drawing your attention, like when the whistling and using a key element like whistling to identify the killer clearly shows that this is a person who knows that uh, knows that sound can be very important and it doesn't just have to be people talking the way that he he put it in there. And sometimes he had really silent moments where nothing was making a sound. And then all of a sudden there was like a really loud car horn or something else that really kind of, you know, shook you out of your seat a little bit as it jolted you awake. And I, I thought it was really interesting the way that he played with all of those elements um, in in the film to really make this one of the more effective sound films that I've seen from this era. Absolutely agree. And for me, it comes out in these sort of unintentional montages, right? Because you get these long sequences where we have uh, been in the room with characters who are talking, who are having a conversation or a meeting. And then we go into a sequence where for a long period, characters don't talk. They are just at work, right? They're doing their thing. They're breaking into the police station. They're, you know, destroying stuff, whatever the case is. Um, you know, we it ends up with being a sort of montage, a time-passing montage that we wouldn't get. Otherwise, there, there may have been music in it if, if it was a more contemporary film. There was, uh, but, but in this case, the absence of speaking, I I think really um, it, it drives you into that uh, sort of silent film mentality where you're, I think you're paying more attention to what's going on on screen uh, and not relying so much on on you know being told what is going on on screen or, or waiting for that next thing to to be said to you. And so for me, it was actually you know even though I was exhausted by the silent films uh, the the last two, um, I really found the sparseness of the sound of the talking in this film. Uh, great. I, I really connected with it. One of my favorite moments of uh, the way that the sound played in with those um, those almost still lifes that he created is after all of the criminals, um, they they capture um, the Laurie's character and they run it with him out of the building because they know the police are on their way. And you get these still life shots of the damage they have done to this building in the hunt yeah. uh, for his character. And you see, you know, the still shots of the guards unconscious, the still shots of the floor that had been chiseled away, the still shots of the the gates that had been ripped down, all these st beautiful still shots where nothing's happening. And then you see the still shot of the hole in the floor leading down into the bank. And then you hear a voice from down there. <laughs> it's just like, hey, you idiots, you pulled the rope up. <laughs> I was just going to say and that. Then, it's brilliant. And, 
It's so brilliant. And then a hand lowers the rope and you just, you know, as an audience, that's just a great moment where you're like, you know that this is not his team anymore who is lowering the rope for him. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful moment as he climbs back up only to find uh, that the cops are all surrounding him. I'm just fantastic. Lang uh, believed this to be his finest film. Yeah, and he made a lot afterwards, so I don't know, I don't want to think that it's just all downhill from here. I mean, I really enjoy this film, but I'm certainly hoping the next two in our series are going to be good ones to watch as well. Me too. Um, You know, you you made a note that some lines are delivered straight to camera. Is this a a breaking the fourth wall thing, or they just hadn't figured out how to stare longingly into the middle distance? No, I just think that it's something that Lang um, would like to do because he certainly seems to do it quite a bit where a character will like speak into the camera almost as if it's a a POV shot to another character. And it's an interesting way to uh, kind of deliver some of these moments. And with this film in particular, where it has such documentary realism and he, he cast such interesting faces, including rumored to be some actual criminals, um, these faces that he caught on film were just such interesting faces. I think um, Roger Ebert in his review talked about how ugly all the faces were and how he thought that they all were pig-like. Um, and I think that's an interesting reaction to seeing all these faces in this film and having them deliver these lines sometimes like straight to the camera or just get these incredible close-ups of them just really helps capture that sense of presence and that kind of that documentary realism that uh, he was uh, capturing here. All this immediately before he throws Peter Laurie down the stairs for the 30th time. (laughs) Yes, uh, Peter or uh, Lang certainly abused Peter uh, quite a bit on this. Uh, I mean, he got great stuff out of him, but as uh, per usual, it sounds like Lang uh, continued to not hold back with the way that he mistreated his actors to get performances out of them or to get the shots that he wanted, and including throwing Laurie down the stairs over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, he's not a not a good guy to hang with. In keeping with our uh, tradition of Lang so far, did you notice any any uh, uh, bodiless hands coming into frame that potentially could have been his? That was going to be my <laughs> question for you. I did not. Did you find the bodiless I, hand? I see one. There's there's one hand that I definitely noticed. I mean, there might have been others, but the one hand that I really noticed that made me think it could have been Lang's was right at the end after the cops come into the kangaroo court and you get the shot of Laurie on the ground and a hand reaches in and grabs his shoulder. There it is. That's got to be him. That's the one. I think that has to be his. Oh. I, I want to go back and rewatch Scarlet Street now and see if there's that uh, floating hand somewhere. Yeah, you're there right. You're right. His. It's got to be. I uh, the the other thing that I found myself locked onto is this the history of forensic fingerprinting. Oh, yeah. Was that was that did that strike you sideways? I they spent a a, a, a sequence talking about the value of these fingerprints that they were able to get, um, uh, and so obviously you know now it's CSI Germany. <laughs> latent fingerprinting in 1931, and I thought, wow, is that isn't it a little early for fingerprinting? Did you did you say think the same thing Andy? Did you think fingerprinting 1931? No. 
<laughs> couldn't be. No, but what I loved about that is a sense that it felt so new. And it was like, let's let's show them how this really works sort of thing. It's like watching the Starship Enterprise uh, departing from the dock in the first Star Trek movie that takes totally. way too long because they're like, this will be great. People will be thrilled. Cut back it's to like, the captain again. Right. It's the same thing. It's like, let's show them how this really works. In point of fact, Andrew, point of fact, fingerprinting was established... Uh, as a uh, established in the first forensic professional organization, the International Association for Identification, in 1915. Oh, wow. Think about that. So it had been around for a little while. That's a hundred, over a hundred years, fingerprinting. No two fingerprints have ever been found alike in many billions of human and automated computer comparisons. So they, they've been storing all the fingerprints from... When they started, I, I, I don't know. Now you're now I don't know, Andy. Now you're just gone too far. Oh, you you reached the end of my research. <laughs> I'm sorry. I it's fascinating though. I think it's really interesting. I thought that was really cool. That was a part I was really excited about. They made a big deal about it about their the criminal process, and I thought that was uh, that was a really fun sequence. I absolutely agree. Okay, so you wanted to talk a little bit. This is a new sequence, a new segment here uh, on the next reel. This is a new experimental segment. First shot, last shot. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at what a filmmaker starts and ends a film with. I think that it can say a lot about what they're thinking about this story and kind of this uh, concept that they have here. Well, I have given it exactly no thought because you just sprung it on me. I did. That's because I I, I act that way. You know, I'm a little rebellious. Yeah, dirty. Improv, man, improv. I know the first shot was... um, it was it was the singing of the kids talking about the the hatchet coming down. Right, we have the gong sound over black, and then the kids' voices come in reciting that song as they play this game um, about the the you know the killer who's going to kill them. And you see that then it cuts to a shot of these kids. It's kind of an over an overhead shot mm-hmm. of a group of kids as one kid kind of moves in a circle, pointing at the kids as she's counting them out to see who's out as they play this game. And it's really interesting. It's a really interesting shot because they kind of are in the shape of a clock, and this kid who's moving is almost like the hands of a clock as she goes around in the circle pointing at the different kids. And it, I, I think it's a really interesting way that Lang sets up this whole idea of time in this film and how time is really critical. And, and you got to think about um, the time that uh, you know these detectives and these criminals have in order to catch this uh, this murderer before he kills again. And um, I, I think it says a lot. I mean, it's these kids kind of counting down and, and taking one of the kids out. So I, it's a really um, interesting way to start the film and kind of set us up for the story that's about to happen. It links to many circle-themed shots throughout the film. And I think that also um, sort of implies time and distance and the fact that, you know, the, the one that really hit me sideways was when the mother is looking down over the stairs and we see this incredibly shallow depth of field shot looking down a stairwell about five stories. And that also, for me, insinuates time. It, it is the time it takes to climb these stairs. It is the time it takes for the daughter to be, you know, to, to climb to home again, right? It is that same sort of relationship with time and space that I thought was really great. And of course, the circles, I think, connect really well. How does this lead us to the last shot? The last shot of the film is three mothers in mourning after uh, after the police have caught um, Beckert. And uh, theoretically, I guess, we, we don't really find out, but I'm assuming that they 
they execute him. But then you have these three mothers sitting there, and the one mother of Elsie is talking about how, you know, it's it's up to you. And it's kind of this message to parents. It's a warning that, you know, you really need to be, uh, watch your kids more. And, but it's these three mothers sitting there in mourning, almost like they're the fates, and almost like, which it, it's kind of strange. I'm not quite sure what uh, what Lang is saying by having the three mothers there. It's because it, you know the fates kind of fits, but it kind of doesn't because are, are these mothers the ones who are now in charge? And I guess they are by being responsible and really paying attention. They're the ones who are responsible for the fates of their children. But that being said, it's like you know Elsie was just walking home from school. It's it wasn't really the mother's fault. It wasn't like the mother wasn't watching her. Yeah. Um, so it's it's kind of a strange, uh, strange message, but it's it's a really interesting way to end the film because you you get this sense of closure from the case, but not really. You don't really find out what the verdict is. Um, you don't really find out what happens. It's just now we're left with these mourning mothers, and this is give, bringing us back to these these female characters that have been gone from the film for the bulk of it. And now we're back with them, and it leaves us in mourning for these kids and for the fate of other parents who aren't being careful. So it's it's kind of an interesting way to end it. Yeah, it really is. There's almost a, a reflection of control, right? That that in the opening sequence, um, you know, the mothers are frustrated because the kids are singing this horrible song, right? There is that that moment right. where she says, you know, don't they can't sing that song? Oh well, kids are going to be kids. Uh, and in fact, that's the that is the the message of the film. They're going. Kids are going to do stupid stuff, and so you, as a parent, you, you know, going by Lang's uh, sort of doctrine on the matter, you have to exercise your own control uh, over that. And and this whole film becomes an exercise in what happens when you exercise control, uh, and you lead toward the mom mentality, and what you ha- what happens when you lose control, and you lose your children, and you lose um, you know you lose control of the political process. In fact, as well, so. That is, yeah. it's that's fascinating. It's interesting. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting setup and a payoff with the film. There are just a, a couple of cast members we need to bust through here. Uh, obviously, Peter Lorre. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, some people say this was his first film. It really wasn't. It was his third film, but it was uh, the one that really kind of was the breakout film. And I think it is fair to say. I think I read somewhere that you know they they had him for this film do the whole part in German and English and French. And because of that, technically, his English performance of this is technically his first English film that he's done. So I guess you could say that. Uh, the the version I saw was not in English. No, the English version, uh, you can see clips of the English version and the French version in uh, some special features on did, the Blu-ray. Did they have everybody do it in English? <laughs> no, only him. The rest of them were dubbed. It's it's kind of interesting, but I guess for his big speech at the end, and, and I guess he could in those two languages, so they just shot it uh, three times. He is, um, this is a stunningly powerful performance from him. At 26 years old, this, he, you know, he made the film. Absolutely. Whether it's, you know, watching him in horror as he stalks this second child or, you know, as he breaks down at the end. I mean, it's it's such an interesting uh, portrayal that he has here. I, I really enjoy everything he's doing. There's a, a wonderful interview. Not sure if this was from the Blu-ray or, or where I, I found it. It was on the, it was one of the Hulu um, clips. Uh, that also plays with the film, uh, and one of the the writers who was had been interviewing Lang when he talks about Lang, he says Lang talks about Peter Lorre like Lorre is his favorite pet. Uh, that he he absolutely loved Peter Lorre, 
he he loved him like a like an animal or a child. Uh, he wanted him always present, and was still as hard on him as he was any of those other actors. And as a result, Laurie's relationship with him was one uh, very much of love hate. Uh, I find that yeah. fascinating because I don't think they uh, worked together after this. No, yeah. Otto Wernicke as Tubby Loman. <laughs> Loman. <laughs> Norman. He was uh, he was great as the uh, as the chief inspector. This was also his transition from uh, small silent roles to the talkies, uh, and he played this role twice. This is really what he was. Uh, this is the role that he is remembered for. He played it here in M, and he played it again in 1933 in the Testament of Doctor Mabuse. Um, and I, you know, I don't I don't know that he was really known for for you know any other particular role. I don't know him from anything else, um, but uh, I enjoyed him in here. He, he you know, I, there's something about that character that I thought worked well. Um, you know, I think he kind of had the right balance of that documentary realism and sometimes a little bit big. I think that when he has his back to the criminal at the end and, and he, as he's trying to draw from him, you know, who these guys have caught and wh- who they're going to kill. And he finds out that it's the, it's the child murderer and he kind of has that first he has that smug expression on his face and then he kind of you know is shocked and his cigar drops from his mouth and everything it's pretty big and broad but i still thought there was something about it that i really liked so i think that he actually works really well as this inspector we need to talk just a little bit about that shot oh yes the the shot from the ground now we're we're on the ground and we're looking up and loman is on the phone Right. And he's he's definitely doesn't look great. Later in this is later in the movie as they're trying to figure out the evidence and why Beckard hasn't come home, etc. Now, I made a comment to you in Slack as I was watching the film, what is up with this shot? Uh because it's really, I mean, there is a certain sense of kind of um uh how do you want to put it? masculine obscenity. Yeah, it's in it's the a, film there's it's he, a kind of an uncomfortable shot to look at. Yeah, and it's long. It's you the shot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's a long shot uh, from this angle. And then you go and dig up brilliant. Re- you answer my question. What is up with that shot? Luckily. Please. <laughs> Luckily, I found an answer. Yeah. yeah. What is the answer to this shot? It was from an article from uh, from 1931, I believe, that actually came out at the time of the film. And somebody wrote, the police are diminished with a wave. The detective photographed from below like the Soviet people photographed Alexander Kerensky or old czarist generals. So, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, Lang obviously would have known that at the time. And now maybe we don't necessarily know that, but pulling from, again, this documentary realism, and here he is um, photographing this cop like the Soviets photographed this, this czarist general like, uh, you know, somebody that they are dismissing, that somebody that, you know, we're down almost at a worm's level looking at this guy. Yeah. And and this particular angle, you know, his foot is raised a little bit. You almost get the sense, you know, the way you talk about the camera hunting, you almost get a sense that we are the camera and his foot is on us, the subservient foot. Uh, and I, I think that is, it ends up being kind of fascinating when you look at it in that light, but it is, uh, it's a shocking uh, angle when it uh, when it hits you the first time. That's yeah, pretty interesting. It's it, you wouldn't necessarily pull that right away, uh, that connection. So it's nice having that uh, that bit of information um, 
to help you kind of understand it um, from from the period. Yeah, and certainly relate to the police a little bit better in this film overall. I yeah. think that's that's fascinating. Gustav Grundgens, the safe cracker. Gustav Grundgens is one of those that actually I, I'm not sure how to relate him to Fritz Lang because he it it, it seems sort of followed the footsteps of Lang, maybe as a full-on Nazi collaborator. He took over the National Dramatic Theater uh, after his role as the safecracker and, well, eventually took over the role. He uh, had a long career uh, through the the regime, and we're just not sure uh, sort of what level of sort of commitment he had to the Nazis. Was he, you know, did he give himself over as a as a member of the party, or or was he, you know comping it so he could continue to work. He is a fantastic character in this role, sort of the the kind of leader of the criminals. He ends up being the most fascinating at the very end of the film. I found him to be very intriguing all through the film. I mean, he seemed to be kind of the leader of the criminal underworld. I also thought it was really interesting that he had gloves on and the way that he operated sometimes seemed exactly like another Lang character that Kubrick would pull from for a Dr. Strangelove. He was Mephistopheles and Faust, and apparently the people say he's the best that there ever was <laughs> in 1956. You know, you forgot to mention for Otto Wernicke that he played Captain Smith in the first official Titanic film <laughs> made under the Nazis in 1943. <laughs> That's right, and this was my favorite my favorite quote. Uh, the addition of an entirely fictional heroic German officer to the ship's crew was intended to demonstrate the superior bravery and selflessness of German men as compared to the British officers. <laughs> Apparently, it did not work, and Goebbels ended up banning the film entirely. It was never oh, it was it was never shown after its uh, initial theatrical opening. <laughs> oh, Goebbels! <laughs> my my my. <laughs> So funny. The only other actor I wanted to talk about was yeah. Heinrich Gotho, who uh, we hadn't brought up in the other films, but he's been in in Metropolis and Spies, all the films we've talked about so far. And who was he in this film? In this film, he is the man who tries to help the little girl give her the time and says, who, you know, who are you uh, looking for and, and all that. And the one who the the other people get suspicious of and gang up on. And you've got that fantastic shot of him. They, this is a great place where Lang does some interesting, um, some nice perspective uh, shots of these two characters as as you're looking really exaggeratedly of this big, tall guy looking down on Heinrich Gotho and then Heinrich Gotho's shot looking up at this guy and just some fantastic shots as they everybody starts getting suspicious of him thinking he's the murderer. Um, so that's his character here. And in Spies, he was uh, toward the end, he's the one who finds the, the clue that helps them determine um, who... Um, the bad guy is, and I, I'm not sure who he was in Metropolis, but he is a guy who was a bit player in so many of Lang's films. If you look at his filmography, there's just, you know, many of them are in Lang's films. He did 52 films in all, but he, on the flip side to some of these other characters that we've been talking about, was Jewish, and he was essentially forced to retire after 1933 because of that. And uh, there's a lot of... Um, arguments about what happened to him and some people say that he ended up living into the into the you know the 50s or 60s some but it's all disputed nobody really knows what happened to him wow he's got a great look and i i really recognized him from uh from this film 
we met, talked about the original title, Murder Among Us, Murderer Among Us. Um, talk a little bit about that. How, how did that uh, impact getting this film produced? Well, it's, it's interesting because that title is what caused uh, a lot of struggle of Lang and team to really get the funding to do this because people were saying, we're not going to let you make this film. It's, it's called Murderer Among Us, and it's about a child murderer. But people felt that, you know, at the time of the rise of the Nazi party, that the film was basically a message saying that, uh, you know, that this guy is, this murderer among us is the Nazi. And people felt like he was really putting uh, too fine a point on it, maybe, and felt that uh, they would, didn't want anything to do with it because they felt like they would get in trouble with the Nazis. And so they had to change the title smartly, uh, just M, because it makes it so easy to search. Not really. It's a disaster to search, is what you mean to say. It's horrible. <laughs> exactly. That was me being sarcastic. Oh, my goodness. Uh, makes for a nice poster. Yes, it makes for great imagery. The cinematography. Um, I actually I adore the cinematography of the film. I think it is actually quite lovely. I felt more of the sort of contemporary kind of artistic style in in the film. Um, you know, the just the way we end up wandering through town. I thought it ended up uh, being particularly lovely. And then you get these example shots, like the shot on Wernicke, uh, you know, looking up. You get the shots of looking of the the um, uh, Heinrich Gotho shot, where we we use height uh, and that sort of perspective to give us a sense of how far away the dominant political forces are from the people. I think it just they end up using the camera really beautifully. It's it, it's really fantastic. And considering this was his first time using the sound equipment and a sound camera, they really still put a lot of movement throughout the film. And they have some beautiful, just deliberate, slow movement. Um, they have some faster movement. I like the way that he really played with it. I love the shot where we're kind of going through the, um, what was it, the Court of Beggars or whatever it was, and you see kind of all of the stuff that these beggars are collecting. We see the sausage bar as the guy's kind of erasing some stuff off the menu board. And then the camera rises up to the second floor, and we see through the window, we see criminals, we see the safecracker and his team through a window, and the camera pushes in to the glass, and it goes through the glass. And you can kind of see, you know, the, the, the trick from the 30s as they kind of quickly slide the pane of glass away. But it's just, it's so beautiful. And regardless of the fact that the, the trick is given away, it's just, it's such a nice move. And it's a, a nice way to kind of keep us in this world and kind of get us a sense of the space. It really is. And one of the things that I think the camera really leverages is uh, camera and editing in this case is the, the parallel story of the, the, the sequence where we have the, the meeting of the criminal heads and the meeting of the police, both brainstorming how they're going to move forward. And they, they sort of capture the same um, kind of political setup of each of these groups, cutting back and forth using the really high kind of almost security camera style over the criminals. Uh, and uh, I, I think it just really adds dimension to it and of course the smoke my goodness i feel like i'm swimming through it in this film the way the camera moves in and out of the smoking it's just amazing well what was great about that as you were kind of intercutting between these two groups is you almost can't recognize them anymore and it it makes them really the same and i thought that was a really interesting way 
uh, to kind of tie them all together. And even though they are such different groups of people, they all have this common goal. And I, I loved that uh, that he tied it together that way. Now, you didn't like the uh, the narrower frame on this, right? The 1.19 to 1 aspect ratio. Well, you know what? I I just couldn't really get used to it. And I think I'm, I don't know, I, I admit I'm spoiled, but I'm, I'm just finding myself used to larger frame, the wider screen and the pillar bars, uh, such exaggerated pillar bars on my screen made me really frustrated. They are very wide. And it's because in this old, uh, these old cameras with, uh, with these initial sound cameras, the soundtrack had a lot more room. It wasn't off to the side or between the, the sprockets as it was on later um, cameras. It was actually taking space and chopping into where the image normally had been. So it went from a 1.33 aspect ratio to a 1.19. So you get a much closer to a square aspect ratio, which was really interesting, I thought. Yeah, definitely interesting. I just found it hard to adjust to. Otherwise, I loved the camera. I think it, they, it, it moves very well. Well, and, I, I, and there's a great, um, uh, just I like the movement, like I said, but I, another moment that I really liked was the moment when Beckert goes to he, his his um, uh, attempt at killing this or catching this next victim is, is uh, foiled. And he goes to this little cafe and he's behind this wall of vines and the camera just kind of slowly creeps in on him, almost like we are now hunting him. And the way that Lang used that movement, I thought was so interesting as we kind of push in and he's so obscured, we can see him through that through there, but it's it's just obscured enough where we don't get a, a clear picture of him. And he grabs a couple uh, uh, shots of cognac and then the camera just kind of retreats as he kind of comes out. Really interesting. Likewise, I love the moment when the inspector is thinking and he's trying to piece together this clue about the cigarette. Every time he kind of has a little inkling of a, of a hint, the camera kind of does this little, it's, it's just a, it's a real quick push on him and then it freezes. And then he's thinking and he, he comes up to it and it pushes in on him again and it freezes. Just such great moments that it just show that all of these filmmakers that we respect and love so much nowadays are pulling from a master like Lang from films that were made like, you know, 80-some years ago. I mean, it's just amazing. One thing, note that you made around production design, around the, the sort of sexual visuals of the arrow as as he's as Laurie is following the girl, right? This arrow is in the store display as it's sort of plunging up and down, right? Pointing uh, luridly at her. Uh, but this is one of the things I made, one of the notes I made about the camera as well. Like that sequence uh, is... A kind of the handoff where we get the sense that the camera at first allows us to be Lori following her and then the the whole thing turns and Lori starts to exhibit more of this fear and now we are the camera hunting Lori as you say leading us through the 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 greens you know as we're looking through the hedge and finally you know the ultimate turnabout when he's he's caught um, and and dragged into the court well that all happens as a result, I think, of the the sort of or or with the great help of the visual treatment of the camera, the way the camera moves and allows us to to turn on Laurie visually. I think that's really powerful, um, and and that again makes me think back to the to Walter White and and you know turning from the the protagonist to the antagonist in that case in this case the antagonist to the sympathetic character that's really fascinating you know, I think it's interesting with the with the sound the way that he did it that they felt the need to uh, re-release it in the 40s 
um, when people were interested in it, again, they um, actually enhanced the soundtrack and added a lot more sound into the film. Um, this film is another one that kind of suffered from a lot of uh, cutting and editing. And I, I think because there were uh, multiple versions of it where Laurie was speaking in different languages and the takes were different, um, I, I think that people struggled to figure out what was the one that Lang originally envisioned. And it didn't help that these people had gone in in the 40s and added a bunch of sound effects and, and created a kind of a new soundtrack that it took away a lot of the stuff that he had done. So you got to give credit to these uh, filmmakers or, or these these restorers, I really should say, who have really worked hard to track down and finding original elements and kind of create this uh, the film, the way that it was kind of released. So I, it's it's stunning to watch, and I'm glad that we have it the way it is now. There was no score. No, interesting. Right? there. I mean, there's no score at all. The only thing we have here is, uh, you know, we have the opening sequence of the kids singing, and we have, of course, the, the leitmotif of the Hall of the Mountain King the that uh, Laurie's character is whistling, that we associate that whistle now with the, the murderer on the prowl which I think is a really interesting tool, and it's it's employed very well here. But all of that comes at the cost of no score at all. Which I'm fine with. I think that it works great not having music. I think yeah. that the whistling in and of itself is, the, is really kind of the music that we need for this film to give us the fear that really kind of ends up uh, kind of haunting us as, as that whistle starts up again. And also the sound that we hear that actually gives us hope that these guys are going to catch him. Very true, very true. I The um, the sound was done by uh, Peter Falkenberg and Adolf Jensen. Paul Falkenberg. I mean, Paul Paul Falkenberg and Adolf Jensen. And uh, I, I know nothing of those guys other than uh, that Paul Falkenberg, 30 years later, was responsible for the sound for Hideout in the Sun. Tagline, it happened at a nudist camp. Deluxe 2 DVD <laughs> edition is available with the nudes on the cover. Uh, it's like an artist rendering of a, of a sex romp. And I found that really amusing that we were talking about M, which is such a dark noir expressionist kind of film. And he went on to do such great things as hide out in the sun at the nudist camp. That is so funny. I have nothing else to say about that. The film did get remade, interestingly. Um, the producer of the film... Seymour Nebensall, he actually, um, he had the rights to it, and he knew that there was popularity with it, and in the in the 50s, in 1951, he actually had American director Joseph Losey direct a, an American remake of the film, shifting the, the action to L.A., where it's essentially the same story. Um, I don't know much about this version of it. I think it's interesting that they did it. I think that the reviews were relatively positive, considering it was basically a remake of this classic film. But um, it's just one of those things where it's like, was that necessary? I don't know. But, you know, in the context of remakes and, you know, what we are getting these days, I guess it doesn't surprise me that much. I guess the only thing that would surprise me is that it took so long. Yeah, right. 20 years. I think that's about it, Andy. I think we're ready to talk about how it did. You know, I wish I could tell you how it did. Um, this mm. film was released uh, in Germany. It was May 11th, 1931. And then I believe it was 1933 here in the States. But I have no other information. I looked around and I just couldn't find anything as far as uh, what they spent on it. Uh, I, I think I did find that they shot... They shot the film in, uh, was it uh, six weeks that they spent making this film? So, um, 
know, it's six weeks is a decent production. It's no Metropolis, but I, I think it was a, a fairly decent amount of time to put a, a film like this together. So unfortunately, that's all I have. I mean, I, I can say that this film is largely regarded as one of the uh, great classics. I think the German Film Critics Society or some group, I, I'm not quite sure of their name, they voted this like the best German film ever made. This is a film that is always ending up on best lists. I think that... Um, uh, is it Empire Magazine ranked at one of the uh, number 33 on the what the 100 best films of world cinema. So, I mean, it's it's clearly a classic that people love and respect and, you know, directors pull from all the time as they're, you know, learning techniques to make their own films. I just don't have any numbers as to how it actually did, which is disappointing. I wanted to hear something that involved Reichsmarks, <laughs> and I'm deeply disappointed that I don't have that. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Sign in with your account over there and then search for M. I triple dog dare you. Uh, it's hard to find. Actually, on Flickchart, it's okay. But if you just no, go into the show, no- show notes. <laughs> no, it's actually not. I think it's actually even worse. You search for M and it does not show up. You Even in your list, you have to search by, uh, you have to go into Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang. That's what you have to do. It's letterboxed you can get, uh, you can search for. But yes, Flickchart, it's all but disappeared. It met with an accident. But you can get to it if you just scroll down in your show notes and, and tap on the little link right in there. I put a link right in there to Flickchart. You can grab it um so that's what you need to do and then we're going to rank it and we're going to see this is my favorite of the three we've done so far i can't wait to see how it stands for you dr nelson let's see where it goes first up we have m or the long kiss good night i'm saying the long kiss good night that messes <laughs> me up that becomes the long kiss good night block it, it, that's right it was kind of a block no i definitely i'm i am uh, i'm gonna say m on this one are you yeah Wow. Let's okay. do it. Out of the gate. Let's do it. All right. And we're not doing a head, hand, and heart on this one. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> okay. One, one two, two, three, three paper. paper. Mm. Uh, one, one, two, two, three, scissors. One, one, two, three, paper. Oh. One, one, two, two three, three, scissors. <laughs> one, two, two, three, scissors. Paper. Oh, <laughs> hard one, totally uh, legit. That was that was a well one. Okay, M or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, Eternal Sunshine. Hi, Eternal Sunshine. M or Sunshine. Sunshine. Yeah, let's say sunshine. I'm a little conflicted on that one, though. Yeah, me too. M or being John Malkovich? I will say being John Malkovich. How much? I will say being John Malkovich, 100%. Right. Okay, me too. M or Viridiana? M. Hmm. Yeah, I'll say M. Mm. <laughs> mm. Or lethal weapon? I will say M. I will say M. M or the Lavender Hill Mob? I'm going to go with Lavender Hill Mob. I'm also going to go with Lavender Hill Mob. M or The Departed, your favorite Mark Wahlberg film. <laughs> I hated that so much. <laughs> um, that's maybe that's what M is M is missing. It needs a a, a Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> I'm going to say The Departed, though. Are you really? 
I am. I almost want to say M because I feel like, uh, you know, The Departed pulls from M. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I'm pretty light on The Departed. So if you're going to push M, I'll, 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 I'll give you M. Well, let's see where this goes. I'm going to say M. Okay, I'll give it to you. Oh, that wow, was disappointing. Was that was that a, a little too giving of you of me? <laughs> well, there you have it. It's 109. M is now 109 on our flick chart. All right, I'll take it. That's good, and that that makes it the highest of the three. Yes, it does by a long shot. Yeah, it's quite a bit. All right, it'll probably be Ben Lott's number one film at this rate. <laughs> right. <laughs> We'll see if we get any closer. Uh, what does that do for your letterbox ranking? You know, I give this one a four. Yeah, this is a solid four for me. Well, we're on the same page there. Whew. Just not with a long kiss goodnight. <laughs> what, uh, where do we go from here? Uh, we are going to be um, jumping a few years to, I think it's actually 10 years, to Manhunt, which is uh, kind of a, a, now Fritz Lang will be in Hollywood, and he is making a film about a guy who sees Hitler and tries to take him out, and then they all start hunting him. Interesting. I also have never seen this film. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. It'll be a first-timer for me, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, before that, we have a uh, a very special edition of Trailer Rewind. Steve is taking on the nice guys with a very special guest, you. Yay! Yay! Are we we talking about the nice guys, or are we the nice guys? You're totally talking about the nice guys. Who are we kidding? That's settled science. <laughs> You're a cold-hearted snake. Mostly, mostly because I'm the punching bag. <laughs> That's right. It's not, my, it's not our fault you pick bad trailers, Pete. I pick awesome trailers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not my fault. It's, you guys are snobs. I think your trailers are so big and so awesome that generally we have to put them on the billboard. <laughs> we because, already do them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't wait for the trailer re- trailer rewind on Tickled. There you go. Uh, I'm going to be on that one. <laughs> Looking forward to that next week. Uh, Manhunt on Thursday next week. And uh, until then, you will find me in bed. Well, this time, no snoring. You'll wake up the lice. Andy, I've got a, uh, I got a one star. Oh yeah, and I just, I'm, I read it because of the comparison it makes, the cultural comparison it makes. Here we Looking go. Forward to this. A poor early Fritz Lang work. This was from March seventh, two thousand twelve. Reality check. Plays like a simplest TV show. Main character is not developed. A highly overrated movie, not even having good cult elements. It has early works, historical value only, mainly. Shows the artists in their first stages as persons who have just gotten a camera in their hand and do not yet understand the need for playing out detailed subtle story elements. You feel like you are watching a show made for children. (laughs) The worst American TV shows are this good or better. A classic one star. And then he goes on. I rely on Amazon reviews to help me purchase. The dishonest slant of reviews making this something special must be cleared up by someone. 
The show is a simplistic early work before the artist became great. I cannot afford to purchase everything an artist ever did, including the bad early works. Check out the comment section on the word mediocrity if you want more on this too positive review phenomena. Oh, wow. It makes me wonder why he bothers. Yeah. All these people keep giving such good reviews and I keep buying it. Don't these people know I don't have the money? Exactly. He just keeps buying, Andy. Oh, Uh, find another resource, He needs a new hobby. Well, I've got a two-star from March 16th, 2004. And this customer says, maybe this shocked in its day, but it's terribly dated with long dialogue scenes that could have been condensed way down. Interesting to see Peter Lorre so young and speaking German, but I thought I'd be caught up in the actual movie, but was forced to watch it as a piece of film history, like a college film class. The one thing that prevents the film from being the greatest art form is movies date so quickly. This is a perfect example. Two stars. Wow. That's a... It's harsh. That's a harsh one. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.